Welcome to episode 73 of Dating Skills Podcast. This is Angel Donovan. I've been meaning to cover today's topic for a long, long time. More to the point, to demystify it, because tantric sex is definitely something that most of us have heard of. But for 99% of us, we really don't know what it means or what it's about. We're going to change that today. Some of the other names you will have heard are Tantra and Neo-Tantra. We're definitely working our way into the realm of advanced sexual skills today, and more specifically, sexual skills that are most relevant within relationships. To cover this topic, we have two guests, Mark Michaels and Patricia Johnson, a couple who have been teaching Tantra since 1999, that's 15 years. They have run seminars all over the US and in fact all around the world on the topic and written many books, including two award-winning books on the topic. The two award-winning books are The Essence of Tantric Sexuality and Tantra for Erotic Empowerment. As you'll see in today's interview, Mark and Patricia are not only very knowledgeable in the field, but also both very open and generous with recounting their own personal experiences, which is always important to make this information real for us and to make it come alive. It certainly inspired me to dig deeper into this subject myself in the future as we really just started to scratch the surface of tantric sex and tantra. So consider this an introduction into tantra to see if it's a good fit for you right now and to whet your appetite to learn a bit more about it. It's certainly a topic we'll be coming back to to explore a lot deeper in future episodes. As usual, to get the MP3 download, the interview transcript, and all the show notes, you can go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash DSP73. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step by step, episode by episode. So Michaels and Johnson, um, have you been keeping up? with the shows of the masters with sex on TV lately? Um, you know, we haven't seen it. It's definitely on our list, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we haven't. Sorry. <laughs> Does anyone ever refer to you? You know, cause the similarity is just a little bit too close there. Masters and Johnson, Michaels and Johnson. When our first book came out, one of the blurbers described us as being a masters and Johnson for the 21st century. So we kind of ran with it from there. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, not a bad way to start out at all, is it? <laughs> it's quite a quite a good recommendation there. Um, so yeah, just for the audience, uh, Masters and Johnson were some of the first sexologists uh, to technically study sex and so on. And there's a show called Masters of Sex on TV right now, which is pretty popular. It's like a drama based on the whole relationship they had. So uh, today we're talking about tantra and tantric sex. And uh, first of all, I just wanted to get a some quick background on you guys. When, when did you get into um, this and, and kind of how did you get into this whole area? Uh, well, for my part, I, in my teenage years and sort of early sexual experiences, had occasional moments that were transcendent and amazing. And I, so I, I knew there was something there in sex, but I never knew how to tap into that at will. And 
time went on and in kind of in the in the mid to late 1980s there were a few books on on tantra that came out and were popular and i picked them up and looked at them and i just kind of thought they were weird <laughs> and and couldn't really relate to the the diagrams and the language and the and the kind of new agey feel that they had but i i remained intrigued and about 10 years later i i had my first marriage had ended and i seeing on the internet that there were a lot of people teaching some form of Tantra in California. And I finally kind of screwed up my courage and went out and, and did a private session with someone and then did a weekend that had a little bit of Tantra in the mix. And I was hooked. Uh, and I just started studying more deeply and, and trying to learn what I could. So just for the audience, what hooked you? What was it about this first experience that made it something that hooked you? Because like, I imagine most of our audience have, have never, they've heard of Tantra, and this is why I'm doing this episode, because, you know, you hear about it, um, but you're not really quite sure what it is. I think we'll, we'll get into why people are maybe a bit confused about the subject and what it is also. But I think maybe it's something they've never even like thought of getting into also. What was it that hooked you that first time? Well, it was really extraordinary, and it may be hard for some of the audience to actually believe. Uh, I certainly never imagined it for myself. The first day I got out there, I had booked this session with the woman who was teaching the tantric part of the weekend. and. I go to her place and she's, she says, okay, the first thing I want to teach you is this technique we call streaming. And it basically, it involves rocking your pelvis, pulsing your PC or pubococcygeal muscles. That's the, the muscles you use to start and stop the flow of pee and breathing and moaning and, and doing this rhythmically. And she demonstrated it to me. And, and within a couple of minutes, she was having an orgasm, no hands-free, no fully clothed. And she looks at me and she says, now you try it. <laughs> so I I did, and it it felt a little awkward, but it's and it seemed as though maybe ten minutes went by. I didn't have any genital arousal. I wasn't touching myself. I was just doing this movement and breathing and rocking, and I had this incredible experience. It was basically a full body non genital orgasm, and I was truly in a state of of just altered consciousness for several days after this experience. Wow. And I, I don't, I, we do mention this in our current book, Partners in Passion, but I don't like to tell this story too much because I don't like to give people huge expectations, but it was really life-changing for me. Right. And then, so you've kind of, as you just alluded to, it's different for everyone, I imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and some people probably would get nothing from the technique, but I think a lot of people, if they learn... And guys, especially if they learn that there's more to having an orgasm than getting an erection and ejaculating, and that it really is a full body and an energetic experience, you can just open your open yourself up to a whole new spectrum of pleasurable experiences. Right. It's about expanding your experience here. Uh, so, Patricia, when did you first come into contact with this? Well, um, I would say during my college years, I would it's similar to Mark have, have sexual experiences and they, they seemed, I mean, at times mind blowing, but then again, sometimes it would seem like I got a glimpse into a realm that I thought that was more potential than what I was experiencing. So I started reading what I could on anything, um, any technologies that would allow me to tap into that sexual energy, to cultivate it and to share it with a partner and um, that led me to reading about Taoist practices, Western sex, magic practices, and also Tantra. And once I started reading those texts, for me, 
it was like uh, very much a description of what I was experiencing during sex. And it really gave me tools and a framework to start working with it. So um, I had always been interested in that. But at the time, when you're with younger men in particular, um, sometimes it's challenging to look at sex as a way of not as something you should already know how to do and like we don't talk about it, but actually talk about it, explore it and see what you can learn about one another. And so I didn't find any partners that were willing to do that. And um, gosh, it was years went by and I saw an announcement that there was going to be a Tantra lecture in Manhattan and I went to it and it was Mark's first time lecturing after he had been certified as a teacher. (laughs) So we met there. (laughs) And uh, did you guys connect? Obviously, you're together now. Did you connect pretty uh, immediately? And you've been teaching together for quite a while. How did that kind of evolve? Well, um, it's interesting. Was it a master's in sex kind of drama for many years? Or (laughs) Gosh, no, actually, remarkably drama-free. We um, exchanged emails for a while and... It, I found it very refreshing to speak about sexuality in this way, ways that, you know, where you could talk about the energy of it. And it was just wonderful. And then we we decided to get together and um, just continue the conversation over coffee. And it was. <laughs> and we we basically at that point, I mean, it was maybe two or three weeks after we we'd met and we'd been exchanging emails. We didn't date. We didn't flirt we just decided we were going to practice together uh-huh and here we are 15 yeah. years later almost 16 years later so still yeah yeah still practicing still yes practicing. and still learning <laughs> it's it's wow yeah. no oh, oh really gosh it just gets better that's interesting so i mean is this something that you think you'll ever stop learning about and uh is, does it kind of go through a curve like you learn pretty rapidly for the first year or something and it kind of plateaus and and then you have could you explain kind of how that's because it's been a long time so it's interesting that you're still learning about it well in terms of the tantric tradition itself we after we got together we started we really wanted to find someone who is traditionally trained and initiated in in the authentic tradition he's a westerner our teacher but he started going to india in the early 1950s and was initiated as a swami there so a lot of the tantra that gets talked about in the West is is really just about the sexual aspect, which is only a small piece of the whole tradition. So we wanted much more than, you know, we love the sex part, but we really wanted to have a, a context for the whole, the whole thing. And that, the tradition is so vast and complex that you could spend several lifetimes trying to absorb it all. Right. So the sexual parts are relatively small piece and you could learn that I don't know, within a year or... I think just a few basic concepts can set people off and experiencing uh, their sexuality in a whole new way. And um, what Mark mentioned earlier is huge, huge to consider your sexuality as something that exists beyond just your physical muscular reactions, nerve reactions, and really recognize that pleasure can be expanded and experienced in virtually every part of the body. Just knowing that can set you on a whole new path. Okay, so I want to take a step back here, I mean, to talk about this in more depth, because as you've kind of alluded to, it seems that uh, there's traditional tantra and tantric sex, and then there's there's all these other things that have sprung out over time since the 1950s, since it's come to the West. And I think that's part of like you know why many people have heard about tantra and tantric sex, but they're pretty unsure about it, because it seems like there's a lot of different versions of it, and 
So I don't know if you can kind of clear, give an overview of what it is originally and what it has become today and the kind of things you you encounter about it and what you consider is, I guess you guys are more involved in, in the traditional aspect of it. And so the value of following the traditional versus all the different other practices that are out there today. I would say that what we are is we're we're rooted in the tradition, but we're also very, very aware of the fact that we're 21st century Americans. We're not... 8th century Indians. And the culture in which Tantra evolved is very, very different from ours. The India today is still really different. So the question for us is more, how do we take what our traditional training and knowledge and make it applicable for people who are living in, in a very different society? So really quickly, since I'm kind of more the history guy, <laughs> the Tantric tradition, there's a book called The Kiss of the Yogini, which I think is the best sort of academic treatment of the tradition out there. And the thesis of that book is that Tantra evolved as a specific tradition, say in about four or 500 in the, in the early common era in India. Roots go back way farther than that, but its distinctness took shape then. And at the core of that was a sexual ritual in which the female practitioners would actually go through a kind of spirit possession and be possessed by these ferocious deities. And they would transmit the energy of that possession to the male practitioners through the sexual ritual. And so the females and women in the original tradition were really the initiators and the, and the carriers of the power. Then over the next few hundred years, it sort of got spiritualized is the way that David Gordon White describes it and mainstreamed into more conventional Hindu and Buddhist thinking of the time. And so both Hinduism and Buddhism have tantric currents within them. Well, fast forward 1,500 years or so, and talk about the 20th century. And beginning in the early 20th century, there was an attempt by some in India to reclaim and validate Tantra. And a British judge who was an early supporter of Indian independence was very involved with that. He coined the term Neo-Tantra, which then was picked up another 40 or 50 years later by Osho or Rajneesh, who called what he was teaching Neo-Tantra. He incorporated some Tantric philosophy and a lot of pop psychology and a lot of other things and sort of blended them together and popularized what became the mainstream of, of what's called Tantra in America today. So a lot of the myths that we encounter is that um, Tantra is equal to sacred sex, for instance, or that uh, Tantra is a form of sex work, which um, we have no, nothing against. It's just not Tantra, so to speak. Yeah, we gave a talk in New York City and a a woman came up to us at the end and she said, you know, I'm a professional escort. And in my business, when people talk about Tantra, they mean a prostate massage. Oh, really? Interesting. (laughs) So, yeah, it's been watered down and applied to all kinds of things. And and used for marketing purposes. And yeah, by all means, does not encompass the whole tradition. (laughs) Right. And so what proportion of the the Tantra out there or the Neo-Tantra? is more traditional versus all the different spin-offs today is like 20 percent and because it seems like there's a vast kind of misunderstanding compared to other areas so it's like everyone has their own interpretation yeah there are not a lot of people who have traditional training who are teaching the sexual aspects it's a very small minority there are people who've got very very strong roots in yoga and may have some traditional training who are doing the sexual stuff but there are a very, very large percentage of people who are totally coming out of a, a neo-tantric kind of background. 
which can be great and it can be fine and it can be really valuable for people. Um, where it gets problematic for us is when people aren't really forthright about what their background is or they just make stuff up and they say they're teaching Tantra, uh, which we, yeah. I mean, we've heard people say the most bizarre things. And, the, you know, that Tantra is channeled teachings or stuff like that. And just, just for your listeners to clarify what we mean by traditional Tantra is a concept of lineage. And that means that, you have a, a direct line to a teacher who has a direct line to the teacher before him or her, and it, go, it goes back so that there's a teacher-to-student line. It's lineage, yeah. Initiation is really, a in the classical tradition, it's an initiatory tradition, and, and you, there's an idea that when you have a teacher and the teacher initiates you or empowers you to, to go out and teach others, that you you've been given a kind of energy from that that tradition that's behind you right right i think that seems like there's kind of quite a bit of conflict and when i was like researching for this i came across some i'd like to get into the practicalities of what this actually is to give people you know the audience a much better clearer idea of what this is all about but first um some of the criticism i came across was a guy called george furestein in his book tantra path of ecstasy i assume you know about this and basically his summary is that a lot of people are attracted to tantra for purely genital impulses or neurotic emotional needs, and but they want to clove it in an aura of spirituality. And certainly the only time I ever came across Tantra was like talking to a girl who was probably working in a modern spirituality business. I was actually on a date with her. She pretty much had this same view that uh, people were using Tantra as an excuse um, and kind of like putting this clove of spirituality around, around sex just so that they could have a lot more sex. And so she was using it in a very derogatory way that she was looking at it, kind of a negative way. And I'm just wondering, is it something you often come across this kind of negative criticism today? Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, one thing we, we call that like spiritual excuses or spiritual justification for your actions. And what it is, what it reflects is that there are culturals, a cultural negativity toward hookup or casual sex as a valid way of expressing your sexuality and a valid way of being a sexual person in the world. And so sometimes, or just sex for pleasure sake. And so sometimes couching it in a spiritual term, then suddenly gives people license to have more sex, I guess. Does that sound like what your friend was saying? We also, frankly, do get criticized by the very conservative and traditional people. I mean, I've, I've seen things said about us that, that we're doing the same thing. And it is a sticky, but the problem with the conflation of Tantra and sacred sexuality or, or the assumption that that's all there is to it is that then it becomes a replication of like American Puritan way of thinking. So the sex that you have that is spiritualized and you light candles and you do all this ritual around it, that's sacred sex. And the, and the quickie that you had or the, or the encounter with someone one night stand is profane. And so we're back into this kind of sex-negative, dichotomous thinking. But it's our understanding that anytime you're sexually aroused, you're in an altered state of, of consciousness. And thereby, um, that is in and of itself a sacred state. It's what you do with that's important afterwards. And I, to go back, just one of your early questions is about, do you, can you learn it all? The attitude in Tantra, and, and I think this is one of the ways in which we try to translate the, the ancient tradition into the modern one, is that there's the potential to be 
for want of a better word, enlightened in any experience that you have. There's the potential for something mystical to happen in anything that you do. It's really about bringing your awareness to it and treating your experiences without an attitude of, I want an outcome, but I'm going to explore, I'm going to experiment, I'm going to see what happens when I do this. I think for me, that's the core of what the tantric approach to living is about. It's about thinking of yourself as an ongoing experiment. Mm-hmm. Would you say that like tantra, because the other part of it, as you say, is not about the sex, it's about spirituality and kind of the journey. As many people are going through their own kind of spiritual and self-development journeys, it's just kind of very similar, right? It's just one type of spiritual, you know, one view of how we're growing as human beings as we go through life. Is that a fair way to explain it? Yeah, I mean, I think where it departs a little bit from many, many other traditions, and I think one of the things that appeals to us about it is that it it really doesn't create hierarchies and it doesn't, as a tradition, it doesn't reject anything. So a lot of people and a lot of the sex negativity in the in the spiritual realm is like it's about denying the body and it's about trying to transcend something. The tantric approach is that the transcendent exists in everything. It's how right. we approach it that okay. matters. So in a way, the tantric sex is just applying the, the tantra to the area of tantric sex, um, to sex. And that's become more popular, but it wasn't as emphasized where, in its roots. Or has been a kind of like, I mean, because when you first talked about the history, it sounded like some of the first steps were basically sexual in their nature. Yes. And and certainly, in the, even as it got sort of more mainstream, it the sexual ritual continued and it's still practiced today. But on the other hand, many, many tantric practitioners, probably the vast majority today, are celibate. So Buddhist monks, Tibetan Buddhist monks are practicing a form of tantra. I think you've hit on something very important. It's a tantric attitude. And if you understand the attitude and the concepts, you can apply it to virtually every aspect of life. So so, so many other topics, I mean, that it kind of doves and tails with, you know, there's things like kundalini energy activating the chakras and it's almost like for some people this sounds like a bit woo right um so that's why i wanted to bring this stuff up to tackle these kind of ideas and also its relationship with yoga um could you kind of highlight how you see these it dovetailing with these areas um in our tradition and in our training the kundalini energy is nothing really it's the life force that we're born with it's in all of us its activity is increased when we're in a state of sexual arousal but it's always there so there's no like Kundalini awakening. Sometimes there's a lot of mythology around that causing, you know, psychotic episodes or people not being able to handle the energy. And that's, that's not really our understanding. Our understanding is that it does flow through you every day and at every moment, but the tantric technologies teach you how to tap into it consciously and by choice and then cultivate it and expand it. It's not like you have to blast through your chakra system and have this dramatic awakening. And to pick up on the chakra system, a lot of people talk about this and attach all kinds of um, ideas to it. The important thing about the chakra system is really that whether there's any physical reality to the chakras or not, it's a way of envisioning and imagining and working with your body. Using the chakras as a kind of map for when you're when you're directing energy, your imagination is where it all starts, really. And so if you're, if you're thinking about the chakras, they can be a vehicle for concentrating your imagination. So basically the chakras uh, for people at home, this is the way I understand it, they're just points on the body, a bit like acupuncture points, where there's energy focused 
on the body. Is that how you like explain it? So it's about focusing on those areas in order to let the energy flow. I'm probably explaining this in a terrible way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, they're actually, um, they exist within the body cavity. So they're full body. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of the images of the chakra system show just the surface of the body. And then they show this different kind of geometric patterns or something that represents each chakra. Um, they exist within the body. So when you're with your lover, you can touch the back of their body and encourage that erotic energy to flow to the point where your hand is, for instance. There are lots of deep and complex esoteric components to the, to the study of the chakra system. And just to give one example of that, the first chakra, which is often called the root chakra, is at the floor of the pelvic bowl. And it's said as it's, it's our grounding. It's some people talk about it as being survival. It's the most primal of the chakras and it has an associated sense, which is smell. If you think about the sense of smell, the sense of smell is our most primal sense. It bypasses the narrative part of the brain. Right. And in fact, it's probably that sense of smell that really attracts you to other people more so than the outer qualities of them. It's very, very primal. If you, your listeners have ever had the experience of being with someone and they they seem great, they look great and everything, and they just don't smell quite right. And it, it's just like the chemistry is not quite there. And that's really powerful. Right, right. And then, you know, there's scientific research behind that is to relate to pheromones and, and so on as well. So that's definitely something I've experienced also with myself. There's women that smell great <laughs> and you want to spend more time with them because of that. Um, that. That's for sure. And they may not smell great to somebody else. That's the really yeah, interesting that's part. You know? Right. And we're not talking about perfume here, just to yeah, be clear. That's yeah. um, the way the person smells. Okay, great. All right, so I wanted to touch on those things because I'm sure people are going to hear about chakras and kundalini energy to just give a rough overview. I know all of these subjects are pretty um, deep and so on, but just so that they got some kind of idea of what that's about. Um, but in terms of more like the practice, um, where do people start when, when it comes to tantric sex? What are kind of the first steps? Where would someone go to take their first steps? Do, do they normally go to some kind of meeting like you? What you went to, is it some kind of course? that they'd look up in on the internet or somewhere, or how do, how do people generally start? Or perhaps it's a book, like one of your books, for example. Well, our first three books are really focused on the sexual aspects of Tantra. And actually, our third book is called Great Sex Made Simple. And I think it's a, a very easy and accessible introduction to the sexual aspects of Tantra. And it probably has stuff that people who actually are more familiar with it will, will be a little surprised by as well. So... Great Sex Made Simple, I think, is a, is a, it's a great, great starting point. Great starting point. And then our, our second book, uh, Tantra for Erotic Empowerment, is actually a workbook. So books, I mean, ideally you want to learn in person, but books really open up the whole world. And it, that's a great place to start with information. And then once you're armed with information, you can start to investigate anybody who's teaching in your area. But please, yeah. please look at their bio carefully and see if it resonates with you before you commit to anything well, what kind of things would you look out for so anyway i like kind of the approach i mean like if, if you're interested in tantric sex and what it may offer in terms of expanding your experience of sex then reading your books obviously is a good first step although like we're not talking about basically reading the books and applying at home it's not like like a home course where you can start practicing tantra tantra yourself actually it's more that 
or you can? Yes, okay. actually, both of those books. Um, Great Sex Made Simple is uh, like has is tip format. Each chapter is about 600 to 800 words, and you can crack open a chapter, read it to your lover, and give it a try that night. It's really fun and very useful in that way. Okay. Sorry, if you're with a partner, you can. What would be the first kind of thing you might read and, and start working on with your partner as a first step? Eye-gazing. Yeah, right? I mean, in, in the partnered context... It's derived from a classical practice. And in the partnered context, this is the first thing that we teach. It's the simplest and probably the most profound. And a lot of people don't do it. And it's it's very simply formally gazing into one another's eyes for a period of three to five minutes. Some people, it may be a little hard to go that long at first, but build up to that. This does come out of a classical practice, which is used for meditation and it is a form of meditating on each other. And it works on multiple levels because it harmonizes your moods. It recreates the emotional experience of falling in love on a, on a regular basis. Right. Because if you think, um, you know, watch young lovers somewhere in public and how they can't take their eyes off of one another. And oftentimes they're doing this in silence. They're just totally enthralled with gazing at one another and people think oh that's so cute they're looking at each other so much because they're falling in love but what's really happening is that they're falling in love because they are meeting each other's gaze and this is really powerful for people who are interested in having a a long-term relationships it's huge yeah i didn't know this was a tantric uh practice but i've i've done these kind of things myself um and I would say I'd be a bit careful with it. Like you say, uh, I do it inside a relationship, not so much outside of relationships, because it can be quite powerful in terms of the connection <laughs> yeah. it brings to both sides. We're really laughing because this is the first practice we did together. And um, we... <laughs> and there we are, here we are. 16 years later. So, yes, yes. And we still it's do powerful, it. I mean, we, yeah. we still do it, you know, oh. all this time later. And, and one of the really wonderful things about it, and, and this is maybe not purely a Tantra thing, but... It is well it is in the sense that it, because it's a meditative technique if we feel like there's conflict brewing between us we will instead of having a conversation about it 95% of the time we'll take a time out and we'll gaze into one another's eyes and that's a way of diffusing a lot of the intensity that might come with the conflict that's emerging and getting back into harmony so that we can address the problem. So what we like to say is that while communication is important, talking is overrated, really overrated. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, well, often it's not about what has been said. It can be about other things that haven't been said. And so just for the guys at home, we've often spoken about mirror neurons uh, on this show with David Tien on the count he's um, a professor and i think this is very related to this topic of course on from a scientific aspect this is really a technique for enabling you to to connect as you've been saying and um it's very surprising i mean i think the people at home are going to think you know it's just looking into someone's eyes but until you've actually tried this i don't think you can really un- understand and it is very uncomfortable at first i think everyone has this period where it just you want to look away um, so for instance, when I've done it with my partner, um, I've introduced it to them and I have to keep asking them to keep looking and stay looking, um, uh, st- stay with me on it. Um, because the, the natural inhibitions kind of make you want to look away all the time. Is this what you found with your students and in general? 
Often, and I mean, there are a couple of other things uh, people will often laugh. We've also found with long-term couples that many of them have really lost the habit of doing this. And that can be a real sign that things are are not going very well. If, it, if it's too difficult, or we have one, one person say to their partner, you're not doing it right. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it, that's a sign that something's amiss. Right, right. Because of course, there's no right way to look at someone <laughs> in the eyes. Well, we um, do have, we have a, a certain technique that the way that we teach it that is specific, and there's a good reason for it. And basically, and Patricia will explain the reason, I'll give the technique. <laughs> basically, when I'm looking into her eyes, I'm not putting any attention at all on my left eye. I'm just thinking about looking into her left eye, so straight across out of my right. And I'm trying to focus as much of my awareness on that eye and looking into right. her eye as eye I possibly can. Left eye. So there's esoteric reasons why this is powerful. The right side of the body is seen as sort of the energetic sending part of the body and left more receptive. Also, there's uh, brain function that plays into this and that gives the left hemisphere a task just a slight task. It says, okay, I'm going to focus on my right eye into my partner's left eye. And that's sometimes enough to silence that chatter that can happen, especially if you're dealing with conflict. And um, it just gives it, we call it throwing your left hemisphere a bone to chew on, just enough activity so that the mind can free up and get into that meditative state. There's also research that that shows that uh, people, generally speaking, reveal their emotions more on their left side, uh, on the left side of the face than on the right. This has been known for about 40 years, and I think poker players have known it for longer than that. Okay. Good <laughs> <laughs> <Some> tip there. <laughs> but um, when you're doing this in a dyadic situation, you're not thinking about like, oh, I'm trying to read what her mood is, but you're unconsciously, you're going to be picking it up. And, and that's it's another way that you're getting back into balance with one another. So just for people at home, uh, just because it might, they might, might be a bit confusing, your right eye looking at her left eye is the, is the eye directly in front of you looking at you. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So And then she's doing the same with her side. She's looking from her right to left eye directly yes. Yeah, yes. in front. Yeah. And um, this another beautiful way to practice this is alone and uh, at a mirror. And it's really, really important. We're not taught to regard ourselves with reverence or appreciation or a sense of caretaking. And we look at ourselves in the mirror, we make sure everything's in place, and then we rush off. We kind of objectify ourselves. And it's important to once a day look at yourself and really look with appreciation and the deep love you have for yourself and really make that eye contact. It's really incredible. Yeah, I mean, we taught this at a, at a early on in, when we were teaching at an event. And a few years went by and someone came up to us and, and said, you probably don't remember me, but a few years back you taught this workshop and you talked about eye gazing with myself in the mirror and I went home and I started doing it and it completely changed my life. He felt that it had given him a much deeper sense of love and appreciation for himself and, and that that then freed him up to interact with other people a lot more freely and, and easily. Yeah, and this is really important. I mean, if you have a deep, rich relationship with yourself and one that's filled with love and, and admiration, then you can tap into that potential with others. If you haven't cultivated that or really looked into what it feels like to have that kind of self relationship, you're never going to find it externally. So 
where I first came across this was actually during sex. I think you guys are talking about basically sitting there and, and just looking into each other's eyes. But where I encountered actually was actually during sex and I, I found it made sex a lot more powerful. Um, so just to clarify, you are talking about basically sitting in face, like maybe the first time you met in a coffee shop and you were doing it in a coffee shop? No, this, I mean, we, we talked in the coffee shop and then when we got, the first time we got together to practice sexually together, before we did anything directly physical, we did the eye gazing. And then it became something that we did on a formal basis every time we saw each other at first. And now it, it's second nature and we don't do it as, as a formal practice unless there's a, a real need to do it. Otherwise, we just find each other's eyes all the time. So you mentioned a really powerful technique, and that's to eye gaze during sex. And that's one way of working with the chakra system, right? So you'll be working with the third eye by eye gazing with your partner. And um, the, the really, really powerful time to do it is when you're actually having an orgasm. And just it's both coming, that energy will come through your eyes as well as you'll feel it in your genitals. And it's... It's a nice accelerator. <laughs> and if you combine breathing with that, you're amplifying the, the sexual experience exponentially, really. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about the breathing, because I know that's a, a big part of Tantra as well. What is it about the breathing that is important? Well, there are lots and lots of different breathing techniques, but the simplest answer is that in Tantra and yoga, breathing is the core of how we direct energy within the body. The idea is actually, you hear the word prana in, in yoga, Prana doesn't just refer to our breath, but it refers to the atmosphere around us and the energy that exists in the world and that we're taking in with every breath. So pranayama actually can be translated in addition to regulation of the breath as regulation of energy. So that's kind of the philosophical foundation for it. What that means is that you can change your emotional state by changing the way that you breathe. If you're in a sexual situation, if you're both concentrating and aware of how you're breathing, you can use that breath to alter the experience of sex in a, in a myriad of different ways. So like breathing, you could try breathing reciprocally, or you can try breathing in unison. Initially, especially, it's good to breathe with uh, vocalization. And an uh, exercise that uh, your listeners might be interested in doing is during self-pleasuring. And it's a two-step exercise or two-multiple-session exercise. First, you just want to find out your normal pattern of breathing as you get into higher states of arousal and as you move into orgasm. What do you normally do with your breath? Once you understand that, the next not always step, easy to remember. To <laughs> yeah, sometimes you, you're really flying and you don't you don't know what you did. But once you understand what that is, the next time you self pleasure, alter your breathing in some way. One way, and, and you'll collect the data. You'll see if what does this new breath type do to the quality of your orgasm? And what does it do to your arousal? And it's a lot of fun. And so I... <laughs> <laughs> that is, I mean, I've, I've had some pretty crazy experiences with, with breathing. Oh, um, so I can, I can vouch for that. It, it has a bigger impact. It's quite amazing, the, uh, the change of places on the experience. So can you give any guidelines as to what to expect? Or is it different for everyone? Like, is it... What would faster breathing or deeper breathing or more shallow breathing? What, what Are these the ways you look at changing breathing? Well, in the broadest sense, if you're going to breathe more deeply and more slowly, you're likely to reduce your level of arousal somewhat. And, and therefore, if you're especially if you're worried about ejaculating too fast, it can be a way to slow that down. Shallower, more rapid breathing tends in most people to ramp it up, ramp it up. Yeah. or holding your breath 
can also bring you, you know, a way of peeking over the edge. So, I mean, all of these things are going to give you different qualities. If you want an energizing orgasm, you're going to, but it is individual. Like you point out, it very much is individual. Uh, what is the goal here? Because I know that another thing, as I understand it, is that there's less emphasis on orgasm. So I was wondering, what's the difference between Western sexology or culture versus Tantra today? In the West now, it seems like we, we have a huge emphasis on orgasm versus the experience of sex. You know, if we think about the popular press and everything, everything's about orgasms. And how would you look at that? I think it, it's not necessarily, tantric practices don't avoid orgasm, but the, what they try to do is tap into what the orgasmic state brings to the body and how the body reacts in orgasmic states. Tap into those things by practices that don't limit to the, that physical reaction of orgasm, which is eight seconds of repeated release of muscular tension, and then it's over. So tap into it so that these states can be long-lasting, those altered states or the euphoric states. And it's, it's very unfortunate the way that we've gotten so fixated on orgasm in our culture, because the tantric approach, as Patricia was saying, is really much more about the journey than the destination. And I think yeah. we're so conditioned to be focused on the goal in sex and the goal is getting off that I think a lot of people miss out on a tremendous amount of enjoyment. The reason for tantric sex and the reason that Sting said, you know, seven hours and all that stuff is because in the ritual in Tantra and generally the approach in tantric sex is that if you build and prolong arousal for half an hour or more, typically, you're creating in the body a flood of, of neurotransmitters and, and stimulating chemicals, and, and you're actually changing your consciousness. And when we have an orgasm, we release oxytocin and prolactin, uh, and prolactin which leads to a relaxed state, often to sleep. But if you build and prolong the arousal, you can have the, the intense mystical experience that happens for many people at orgasm long before you have an orgasm. And that state can persist for longer after if you do have one, because the, the drop off from the prolactin and the oxytocin is much more counterbalanced by the stimulant chemicals that are, that are released prior. Yeah. So there's two sides to this. I just, as you were talking, I was, I was thinking there's, we're trying to grow our own experience of sex, as well as we're trying to grow our experience of sex together. Because right now we're talking about how you prolong the experience and um, kind of the excitation you experience yourself. And before with the eye gazing, we're also talking about how we influence each other and, and our states together. Does Tantra look at both of those areas or is it both with the goal of, of improving um, the spiritual experience of sex together? What's kind of the goal behind it? Um well, you work both with your sexual life with yourself and also with your partner or partners so that you're cultivating that rich inner understanding of your body through a lot of these practices. If I had to answer that, I think that it's much more on the latter. Like the in the rich the sexual ritual in tantra, not the earliest form so much, but as it became more spiritualized, the practitioners were there to embody the divine and to serve each other, really. So the idea is that in a sexual encounter, in a, in a ritualized setting, my job is to facilitate Patricia's experience. And similarly, her job is to facilitate mine to take me higher. So it's not about me getting off. It's about me facilitating her and vice versa. And we think this is a really crucial idea that can be applied 
not just in the bedroom, but in, in relationships generally. We're so, in our society, so focused on getting ours. And do you think that by, we're talking again about the experience, like we're breathing and eye-gazing, you, you'll take yourself into a different state of consciousness. And then when you do have your orgasm, it will be com you know, completely different um, because of that. Do you think the very fact that you've done that is going to influence your partner directly? Because the way you're communicating with each other with the eyes and so on is going to be different because of your state of consciousness. So in a, in a way, it's working on yourself, but it's having this partnership. It's having an end result with the sexual partnership. Yeah, and it's through the other that we get, when we give more, we usually get more. And that's certainly... Provided it's mutual, <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> so when you're talking about giving, what are you talking about? Well, it's the focus on, on the other. I mean, this can translate to all areas of life with a partner, but during the sexual encounter, it's just facilitating their arousal, being present, really uh, knowing and, and taking in the information of how their erotic journey is going. And when you both are mutually focused that way, it's amazing. Now, if one is like, oh, yeah, bring it on. I'm enjoying this, you know, and is not equally give, bringing that same thing to the table, it's it's a give and take, right? We're looking for a give, give. Right. Instance. For the yeah. people at home, I, th I think you're talking about staying in contact with the other person without just going on your own mission of getting to the end goal of pleasure. Like running off into the distance and yeah, I want to get mine. You get your orgasm really quickly, but in fact, you are hardly looking at the person and maybe you're even thinking about the last porno movie you were watching or something as a visualization in your head, which means you're completely disconnected from the reality. Right. It's even more than that. It's, it's really a kind of taking pleasure in her pleasure and using that to build up and build up. And so if I'm just thinking about, I, I just want to get off, right? I might have an okay experience. But if we're both thinking like, wow, she's so turned on, I'm going to get more turned on. And it takes it higher and higher. It's not just about seeking my own. Great. So I want to go back again to Masters and Johnson, your pals, uh, because they defined sex, uh, the sexual response cycle as uh, four phases, excitement, plateau, orgasmic peaking, and then resolution. Does tantric, I understand the tantric view is kind of more extended than that. And it looks at a bit different. So I was wondering if that would be an interesting thing to discuss to kind of get the idea of how tantric sex is different. Yeah, you can um, work off that very same model. And if you draw it out as a tantric model, what you're going to have is that arousal phase um, that is extended. So the arousal goes on, like Mark suggested, around 30 minutes or more, whatever works for each individual listener, but in that arousal period, it's not, we're not talking about friction type sex or penetrative sex. It can be any form of arousal that works for your body. So involve any implements, uh, any thoughts or any partners that work for you, because the goal is once you get incredibly aroused, incredibly turned on, that's when you're tapping into your brain chemistry. So that has a very important purpose in that. And the arousal phase, I mean, I think, and I actually have never thought about this in this way before until just now. But if you look at the Masters and Johnson arousal phase, it's basically a straight line. And then it's a straight line with a plateau and the spike of orgasm and the drop off. The tantric arousal phase might be a little bit more jagged. It's, it's going up, but there's going to be potentially at least some points where it drops off during the arousal. 
So it's maybe more like a stairway. steps, yeah. And that's fine. The point is to to keep the build going and let the drop-offs happen and then go a little higher and keep going a little higher. And the plateau phase is going to be much less of a factor in the tantric model. It seems to be much shorter. And then the uh, orgasm happens if you choose and and the drop-off can be uh, less so that you're energized and you're left feeling very, very vibrant. Right, right. That's another aspect of this I I wanted to um, talk about because in some of our episodes, we've talked about um, the evolution of online porn and how that's become detrimental for some men uh, through overuse and over, and we're talking about the dopamine connection and how it affects your motivation and other things just by having got used to this type of stimulation um, in ways that you don't really want you, you become demotivated, you lose your experience of sex to a certain extent. So a, a couple of questions there is, first of all, when you look at self-stimulation from a tantric point of view, it sounded earlier that that's kind of something normal and it's, it's accepted and uh, it's looked, on, looked upon as a good thing. Is that correct? It, yeah. In our tradition, yes. I mean, I, I'm sure there are, there are branches that would feel otherwise, but for what we got from our teacher is that it's really where you start and it really is it can be a, a, a magical practice. It can be a practice that you use for self-exploration and self-discovery. It really is crucial to know your own body right. and to learn how to work with your energy. Now, with this kind of awareness, see, this is a big attitude shift. And if you have a purpose for why you're self-pleasuring and you want to glean knowledge from yourself, it's very acceptable to use whatever tool works for you. And that can include visual stimulation or, or erotica on the internet. Um, I think sometimes the uh, masturbatory practices gets conflated um, when things become dramatized, when things become compulsive. And if any type of activity becomes a compulsive activity or it breaches your inner self, uh, your inner values or anything like that, it, it becomes problematic. But it's not always necessarily the activity that's the problem. It's how, how you're going about the activity. I mean, another issue people have is their masturbatory practices. And if they're only able to orgasm with extreme stimulation, very firm grip, if you're male-bodied or something else like that, then you develop a sexual response that's not, uh, no partner can re- replicate for you. Yeah, we all have our tried and true way to get off and that's fine. But if we just keep carving that same groove, it can become a problem. So being flexible in, in your self-pleasuring practices, even, right. you know, is a great way to keep yourself really, flexible as a sexual being generally. Basic practice in that is just to switch to your non-dominant hand and you're going to learn something <laughs> new. You're going to have a whole different experience. So, so yeah, I mean, there it's very different from the porn. The porn, I think one of the, the arguments is that the experience is very unique and you're actually like grooving that same groove, like to use your analogy, the connection of your neurons every single time. And it becomes very unique and you need more and more stimulation to get the same effects. And then that has some negative impact on energy when you start to like masturbate like, I don't know, 10 times a day. And some guys are masturbating, you know, more than that because of this groove they've started to get into. But you also touched upon the energy and and maintaining energy in the Tantra practice. And as I understand it, like part of the Tantra practice is about maintaining some of the man's energy, you know, because... The stereotype is that the guy falls asleep after after sex, right? So how does Tantra look at that element and the fact that the man tends to get tired after sex and how regulating that? There's a lot of variation in that, in, in attitudes about that. Um, the whole idea of it being a loss of energy and stuff is more, 
more associated with the Taoist tradition than the tantric tradition. In our training, the really the idea is that if you work with the energy and you visualize spreading the energy through the body in various ways and you build the arousal, there's no meaningful change or loss of energy when you when you ejaculate as a man. We feel, and in our background, the non-ejaculatory thing is really useful as a learning tool because it's a great way to start learning how to have uh, non-ejaculatory full-body orgasms. But if you make it into a goal or you treat it as, as the right way to do it, you're again falling back into a, a kind of a trap. So also the uh, falling asleep is, I mean, we encourage people to keep their current sexual practices and the understanding of sex. Um, and as they look into Tantra, think of expanding that, adding to it, not losing or denying their earlier sexuality. And being able to masturbate and know you're going to fall asleep is such a great tool. And I would hate for it to <laughs> give that up. You know, It's your most basic form of sex magic, right? You have an intention to fall asleep, Yeah. do your sexual act, and boom, you fall asleep. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's great. That's definitely um, a good situation for that use. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I want to round off with uh, a couple of personal questions to see if you've kind of encountered, because obviously you've had a lot of experience in this area of your lives. Um, so if you could, like, um, tell me if this is too sensitive, but what was the best sexual experience or aspect of a relationship to date that you've experienced thanks to Tantra or just in general? Yesterday. It's <laughs> <laughs> better every day. Seriously, seriously, yesterday was quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we took yeah. a whole afternoon to just play around and explore. It was really amazing. Okay, well, to kind of describe that to the users in, in terms of what could they expect? Like what's out there uh, to kind of open their eyes a bit to that? What, what, how would you describe that experience? Uh, well, basically, we've been working extremely hard. Uh, we've not really set aside a whole day to just interact together in, in some time. And so we did yesterday. And um, so we set up a massage table. We, we sat, you know, naked together. We talked a lot. We, you know, and then moved into making love a little bit and then not. And then sometimes uh, practicing uh, something called karetsa, which is a meditative sort of non- Soft, you, you, Soft, you insert yeah. when you don't have an erection, you use a lot of lube and you just try to stay together, un, un, united without any motion. And it's, it's just a very sweet way of making love. And you, you know, it's a way of just languidly going through the day and, or, you know, having a few hours together. Cause usually we're like, all right, we've got to get out to dinner plans later on. It's either now or never. And then that can affect the quality of the sex still fine. It's, it's but. so great. But yeah, so it was just this very languid and very, very whole body focused kind of encounter. And then gradually as the day went on, we did kind of get into more frictiony kind of sex. But there was this very prolonged buildup and it was really just very tantric. Great. And so, and for that, what you did was you kind of blocked the day off and you said, we're not going to have any distractions. We're just going to be with each other yeah. for the whole yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. And I think even, even it's important to limit your social media before these kind of days too, because any second you could get a, an image or a email that knocks your brain off of where, where you really want to be. Well, I imagined you'd actually put your phones in another room or something. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Because that's very distracting. I, I find it terrible. I, there's so many times I've just deleted my Facebook account. 
<laughs> no, and phone going, you know, it's, it's, we have one of these uh, phones that tells you who's calling, vocalize it. I don't know uh. if there's a way to turn it off, but, you know, so we, we have the phone in the other room, but still sometimes we can sometimes hear who it, it is. And it's like, mom. <laughs> it's like, how do they know to call then? <laughs> Great. Thank you for sharing that. And I mean, I, I know some of these things are a bit less uh, comfortable for some people to share, but so I think it's very valuable for, to open people's eyes a bit to different ways of doing things. Um, and who besides yourself would you recommend for high quality advice in this area? Um, Barbara Corellis. Yeah, Barbara um, Corellis. She's, she's quite well known. She's a very good friend of ours. She um, is explicitly a neo-tantric teacher. She makes no bones about it. She's got great integrity. She knows her stuff and she really is wonderful to work with. Yeah. And uh, if your listeners want to learn more about our work, they can visit our website, which is www.michaelsandjohnson.com. <laughs> Very easy to remember there. Well, hopefully they're not going to get confused by all the references to Masters and Johnson. Uh, Michaels and Johnson. <laughs> Well, great. Thank you very much for your time today. And there's actually one question that we ask everyone who comes on the show. So I'd love to ask you guys that too, um, as, as a final adios. So um, what would be your top three recommendations to help men get improve this aspect of their life as fast as possible? One would definitely be start exercising your pubococcygeal muscles. We didn't talk about that too much, but it's really <laughs> Okay, that is a very long word as well. The so PC quick, muscles, uh, quick, the Kegel muscles. What you yeah. use to start and stop the flow of urine, that's really the best way to identify them. So that's really crucial. I would say um, I'd encourage them to be curious and educate yourself as much as you can about sexuality, a sexual response, physiology. Everybody loves a uh, intelligent, curious, um, interested lover. So And related to that, ask your partner what works for you. Don't be afraid to be told what works and what doesn't. Don't feel that your masculinity is being threatened if your partner's giving you some direction. A little to the left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly can be very helpful. Thank you very much for your time today. It's been a great talking to you guys and it's a very new topic for us. Um, we haven't talked about this before, so it's been a great introduction. And of course, there'll be links to your books and so on in the show notes. Um, and and uh, we'll have that reference to your site as well there. Is there anything else that we should be adding in terms of no, like I just, Facebook? Anything else where you're present or you could be reached easily? Um, well, we, we're on Facebook as well and, and Twitter. Twitter. Our Twitter account is Tantra P as in Patricia M as in Mark, Tantra PM uh, on Twitter. And um, just uh, our fifth book is coming out probably uh, early 2015. So maybe we'll hit you up and we can continue our conversation again. That would be great because it's obviously a very deep subject. We've just really, I can feel we've only just touched the, the first superficial part of it here today. But I think it, it was a good introduction nonetheless to give people an idea of what Tantra really is all about. Yeah, the questions were great. I, you know, I really yeah, appreciate that. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time and I uh, look forward to speaking again sometime. Great. Okay, Have okay. a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.